Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Lara Chambaker, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeremy Watsman. Hi. Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the centre of the action, in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. But we want to see more. So this season, we're venturing outside our own industry to explore how others do it. Everything we see and do and use each day involves production. So together we're going to find out what that looks like for different people and companies, making everything from TV shows to shoes, buildings to software and all sorts of other stuff. Join us each week as we highlight a different industry alongside a very special guest. As always, it's an ongoing exploration of what the hell we're all doing and why and how we're doing it. This week, it's all about producing video games and I'm jazzed to say that we're joined by the masterful Trent Custis. Trent is the co-founder and production director of Melbourne-based game developers League of Geeks, responsible for digital role-playing strategy board game and international success story, Armello. He's also on the board of Freeplay, Australia's largest and longest-running independent games festival, the chair of RMIT's Program Advisory Committee, a former lecturer at the Victorian College of the Arts, and an industry advisor to Digger Australia. A frequent name on the numerous 30 under 30 lists by the likes of MCV, Develop, Triple J, the Melbourne Writers Festival, and the big one, Forbes, Trent is heavily invested in the future of video games as a medium, fostering and mentoring young and underrepresented developers and contributing to the community wherever possible. Just like coming on this podcast. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) To cap things off, he's also currently game runner on the studio's ambitious next game, which is said to be one of Australia's largest game productions ever, and cannot wait to talk to you about that. But Trent, we are just so happy to have you with us today. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I'm so glad. How's everyone going? Jeremy, how's your week kicking off? You know, I this whole sub two hour marathon thing has just kind of been in my head, you know, since yeah. the weekend. And just like thinking about the sheer numbers of it. Like I, I'm, I'm watching videos, I'm reading kind of articles, but like I... I was I'm looking st- at the pace they would have to be running, like to actually make that happen. 21 k's an hour nonstop, which is faster than most treadmills go. It's like two yeah. and a half minutes a kilometer. Or exactly. Like it's that. two and a half it's minute wild. pacing, which... I couldn't do for like four seconds. I, don't, I couldn't do it for one kilometer. <laughs> yeah. Like I just, I ran the 10K in the Melbourne Marathon oh, on this the weekend. weekend. Yeah. So we had Melbourne International Games Week. It's like 10 days of back-to-back yeah. conferences. And I thought a great way to wrap that up would be to run a 10K <laughs> sure, at 7.30 a.m. in the morning, the <laughs> yeah. day after our Totally normal, party. yeah. So, um, but somehow I ran my best time. But anyway, it's not about Congrats. me. The That was all that they were talking about the whole time. Yeah. And I heard all these wild things like there's the car that shoots the laser onto the road that shows him his pace and then he has they've got the pacing the team the pacing team that like break his wind and all that sort of but stuff but also the pacing team must have like they're also pretty good runners too, right? They would have been just shy of making the record themselves. Yeah, apparently they're all his mates. Like they're all his running mates who are like the best 20K runners in the world. I'm so glad my friends a... don't rope me into doing yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> it's a great metaphor for management, the work that we do. Like I, I like to consider like everyone here kind of my pace setters in kind of some way. Like you all kind wow. of, you know. Yeah, exactly. Another good segue from Jeremy Watson. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then let's do this. So, Trent, we have got you here today because we really want to pick your brains about producing video games. And I know Jeremy already started before recording, (laughs) but we're going to start here. Can you tell all of us more about what it is you actually do and how and why you even got into it? All right. Well, how and why I got into it is probably a better question to start off with. And the funny thing is, is that I played video games a lot as a kid. I think it was like skateboarding, taekwondo and video games. That's all I did. <laughs> no schoolwork whatsoever. So my parents were very happy when I got into the I, industry. I can imagine. Me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was the reason why I got into it is I had no idea that video games were a thing that I could make. Someone told me when I was a kid that video games required this thing called programming and programming to do that, you needed to be this uber maths nerd. And I never identified as that. As much as I was a nerd, I had friends that said I was like a nerd undercover hanging out with the cool kids. (laughs) And so I sort of, that was my identity, you know, one of the cool kids and definitely math nerd was not there. And then I was studying to be a film writer and director. I went back to school and then went and uh, was studying a diploma in professional writing and editing with the goals of being a film writer and director. And during that, I listened to a couple of talks and saw an article, some videos that showed me that there were other people making games who I identified with, who weren't maths nerds, that there were writers and game designers, and you didn't necessarily need programming in the year. When was it like late 
2007 or 2008. Well, of course, I mean, it's the narrative crossover is very exactly. strong. Yeah. And it's funny, it's something that we think is there, has been there all the time when we think about video games, but video games started in a university with a bunch of scientists fiddling around with computers. Uh, so, of course, you had programmers, but then roles get added to that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, we think we need a dedicated artist or we mm. think we need to get dedicated programmer. And so dedicated writers was something that only really came in around in a big way in the industry in 2000s. And that's my background mm. is writing. Uh, professional writing and so well, as the budgets get bigger as the demand exactly, gets bigger exactly. as the quality needs to increase of course you need more specialists yeah and now you have teams of well over a thousand people across five studios across Jeez. five different nations making these video games across hundreds of millions of dollars so you can imagine you have people who are like cutscene lighting editors and you know what i just threw three words together i can guarantee you there's someone <laughs> sitting somewhere in shanghai doing that but yeah anyway so i figured out that as a writer i could get in and so i just did a did a u-turn with my life and got into games journalism and with a quick hop skip and a jump got into game design and i cut oh. my teeth at a studio called taurus games out here in bayswater which at one point was the most prolific independent game developer in the world and they would make titles on the game boy advance or the nintendo wii or the playstation 2 for publishers like warner brothers or sega you know so your your games back in the day that you buy your sega mm. game that you would grab for 40 bucks at you know, EB games and give it to your kid. Always on sale at EB. Yeah, exactly. The bargain <laughs> yeah. big games, they sort of specialized in that stuff, but they were an incredibly talented bunch. And I think in my first three years there, we shipped 10 games. So you go through that pitch to ship mm. process very, very quickly. And yeah, I wow. think, yeah, a lot of talented people came out of there and went on to do great things because of that rapid iteration process. I think it was- Has like, that pacing changed for you now? Yeah, the pacing is very, I mean, it's funny in those three years, I shipped 10 games, I think at Taurus, but now this one game that we're working on is going to take three years. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, okay. So That's how you I got started in. out That's why. during the writing. You got in, you pivoted. And then how did you end up in production? Well, And what do yeah. you do as a producer? That's an interesting one because I don't really identify as a producer, but I sort of, I think I just woke up one morning and was like, oh, I really care about how games are put together mm. as a product as a piece of art and I care about the people who make them and how we make them that we're developing them in a healthy and sustainable way that we're having fun as well it's I say this to the team all the time but I think it's one of the greatest crimes ever that we all have to spend the best eight hours of five days of our week doing something for money right and so if we're gonna do that let's do it with people who we love and who inspire us and doing something that we like in a way that is fun and is enjoyable and productive and that we're proud of and so it's sort of this amalgamation of all of those things, then meeting with the fact that I'm a game designer and writer, and it's sort of molded into this role of game runner. But at League of Geeks, I'm the production director, and it's sort of, I think it's because I'm the person at the company, um, out of the founders who like cares the most about that stuff and is there day to day making that stuff happen. So in a second, I want to go back and like get you to kind of walk us through what's actually involved in producing a game. But mm. I wanted to ask, you know, you mentioned, yes, that you're now this sort of production director. Does that mean you've had to take a step back from the actual writing and designing? Yeah. So in regards to being so hands-on, yes. Yeah, so I'm not really in the trenches doing the writing anymore. We now have a writer on board um, who's working with us from abroad. You know, I get my hands dirty every now and then. I'm involved in the narrative from a very high level, but I also, so production director is my role at the company, mm. but on the new title, I have the role of game runner, which is synonymous yeah. with the showrunner of a series, you know, and the way that we break it down is overall creative and management authority and responsibility for the video game. So yeah. we talked about that in episode one, didn't we, Jerry? We did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, can you tell us a bit how you got to even just kind of starting your own business though? Cause that's a pretty big shift. Yeah, it is. So I left Taurus games um, for bigger and better pastures and was looking overseas and, you know, interviewed for some big roles at some big studios over there. And I was going to make the, you know, the jump, do the brain drain thing and go overseas and boost my career over there. But then someone, I was going for these big jobs and at big studios and a friend very close to me at the time said, what are you doing? You know, I was getting, I was complaining about the big HR process and everything. He's like, what are you doing? You don't want to be a little cog in a big wheel. And it sort of just clicked for me. And at the time, the indie renaissance, as we sort of call it now, was going on where development was democratized. So you had the iPhone and the iPad and the app store. 
mm. come out. And so it cost a hundred bucks to be a video game developer. And then things like Unity and Unreal were free. I think Unreal to license it at one point cost a million dollars. Now all of a sudden Explain. it's free. Unity, Unreal, yeah, what are they? No, that's a really great question. Uh, Unity and Unreal are game development engines. So the vast majority of games that you see today are made in those two engines. And mm. I mean the vast, vast majority of games. So if you play a game on your iPhone, it was likely made in Unity or Unreal. And this goes from little iPhone games all the way to huge AAA blockbusters that mm. you see out there like Mass Effect or something like that. And so these programs that you used to have to license off these companies, so say uh, the Unreal Engine off Unreal, you would have to pay maybe a million dollars to license it just to make one game or to license it for your studio. And then they they sort of realized like, well, hold on a second, if we open this up, because now that video game developers can publish to Xbox or they can publish to Steam or they can publish to mm. iPhone digitally that we've cut out the publisher effectively from the equation, let's just open it up to them and we'll create a new pricing model where we take a cut or maybe we sell a heap more copies. And so, yeah, you could get Unity for free. And, you know, if you want to get the pro version, it costs a little bit, but you could get that in there. That must have and shifted the industry enormously. absolutely changed. That's why they call it the indie renaissance because mm. it's basically what brought in independent development in a big way. There was an indie scene beforehand, but it was largely hobbyist. You had to create your mm. own engine a lot of the time. It was very expensive to do it any other way. So anyway, I was watching that happen from the sidelines and then there was other stuff happening because, you know, we're moving into a more online world and so Trello and Google Wave and all of these things were happening and it all sort of just converged at one point and I thought why do I want to move overseas and it was because I just wanted to collaborate with the most talented people I could that was the thing that I love about video or was the thing and the, the thing that I love now about video games is collaborating with incredibly talented people it's so interdisciplinary I can be talking to a programmer who's doing the most incredible work and then walk five meters and look at you know, a piece of concept art that just mm. blows my mind away and then walk into another meeting and be talking about project management with one of the producers. And that interdisciplinary collaboration with the, some of the most incredibly talented people I've ever met was what I wanted to do. And so I thought, well, hold on a second. If it doesn't cost that much to make video games anymore because all of the software is free and then we can collaborate online so we don't have to be in the same room, well, the only thing I really need to pay for, I guess, in video games, theoretically, is labor. Mm. And so then we devised a, I had this idea for a point space like profit share model. And I got a few of the folk that I collaborated with together. And I said, you know, like three or four. And I was like, hey, I want to do this thing. It's crazy idea. And they were like, yeah, sure, we're on board. Because everyone was itching to sort of do their own thing at that point. Because, you know, they were seeing everyone else jump out of work and create things. And so, yeah, we, we got it spun up. We created this profit share model and that's how we spun up the first game. It was, everyone was remote. We worked out of hours for two and a half years. Everyone mm. had a slice of the profit as basically how it worked was if you were assigned a task, that task had a number of points assigned to it, which was equivalent of what it would take a competent professional to do that task. So let's say a piece of card art, like an illustration. So Ty, my business partner and still business partner, but he was our art director at the time, would look at that and go, okay, well, this would take someone about six hours to do. Someone would accept that task and then they would do it. And if they did it in three hours or in 10 hours, they would get six points. Mm -hmm. And the person, of course, it would be a conversation. They would agree to that that points percentage. But then at the end of the project, if they'd done 10 cards, they'd have 60 points. And let's say just hypothetically, there was 600 points in the project, they would get 10% of the profit at the end of the day. Mm. And in, it was a big success. Uh, in 2014, we went on Kickstarter, we ended up moving into a studio and moving away from the points model because we had some revenue coming in and we mm. just started employing contracting people. But in the end, we ended up giving over, out over a million dollars worth of profit share. And it was the the sort of the spark of an idea that created our studio. But it was our agility that enabled us to pivot to a studio model and change things up. And now we're based in South Melbourne at the Arcade. We have 30 people in there. Um, we're scaling to 50 over the next couple of years. We've got a big project on the go, as you heard. And yeah, now we're just a full-fledged studio. It's fascinating. I've heard of many people now kind of doing whether or not exactly the same but similar ideas of this profit sharing thing where as more and more things are democratized really the only thing you're paying for is labor and mm. it's yeah it's fascinating and I really would love to keep talking about that but I really know we need to get back onto yep. video games because that's <laughs> all we're here for today so can you walk us through kind of obviously you've worked on a lot of different games and I imagine it does shift across different ones but there's got to be some kind of general milestone so what happens from kind of initial concept to out in the world and what are those particular milestones in your industry that are standard yeah sure you are right it changes from studio to studio so whether you're a small team just slapping something together with some mates or whether you're a big 
thousand person studio, it can change drastically. And then even amongst those categories themselves, mm. but generally and traditionally video games operate under a particular milestone structure, especially when you get into the larger studios. And what you'll have is you'll have pre-production and you'll have production. And if you're lucky enough, you'll have post-production. And so pre-production, what you're usually trying to do is find the three C's, which is character, controls, and camera. So Mm -hmm. figuring out those things, you're looking for your visual target. So you're developing your visual style. You're also looking for an experience goal. So you're trying to get what we call a vertical slice which is, if you imagine like a cake, like a vertical slice of the game. So you see all the layers of the game, but it's only a small part of it. So that might be one level done to final art quality and you have the core systems online. So if we take a very rudimentary video game that everyone might understand, like an action-adventure game, like Crash Bandicoot, then you have running and you have jumping and you have basic combat and maybe you have one enemy type and you have some things that you can collect. And so you can put someone in the game and they can play one level and you can go like, oh, okay, I can imagine if this had 20 more levels, what this game would be like. And it serves as a sort of a goal or a pillar or a target or a vision for the rest of the team. And we call that a And who's slice. coming up with this stuff? Who's involved in this process? Well, yeah, it's, it's funny. that This is usually like a small team of leads, like during the during the pre-production process, the team is usually leaner. We have, there are a number of roles in video games you'll have most recently. You know, we have things like game directors or game runners, similar thing, creative director, design director, all these things. But essentially it is a team of leads. So you'll have a lead artist, a lead programmer, a lead designer. You know, you might have a creative director that sits above that. You'll have maybe some audio crew jumping on, but it's a really lean team usually on the pre-production thing. And so when I say really lean, when, you know, for example, Ubisoft, when they're doing this like really early concepting, they might have a team of 40 to 80 people in comparison to their thousand plus team. Wow. When lean is 40 to 80, that Uh, is interesting. (laughs) That's on, that's on a band of video games we call quad A, which is like huge. That's the biggest type of video games. For us, it was our pre-production now. We're in it now. We started with 10. We got up to 20. We'll probably end at 20, but we'll wrap with 40 to 45 people on the game. I want to take a step back, though. What determines kind of whether a game is going to be made? Because I think, you know, one of the biggest changes in the indie renaissance is a lot of these are kind of self-initiated projects in some ways. Whereas I guess you could say the bigger studios are kind of, you know, commissioned by, you know, some person sitting on top of a hill kind of somewhere far away. So obviously, you know, 10 people still is a big investment for your studio, or maybe you could speak to just the industry as a whole. What determines what's going to actually kind of start a game and whether that investment is going to be made? Well, I think if we're talking about the industry, quote unquote, like the commercial industry, then, you know, it's the big one is obviously if it's going to make money, right? You, you've you got to be thinking about your business case all the time. But then also it's like, what do, what do you bring into the medium? Here at, League, at, here at League of Geeks, we're actually at Jackie Windsor right now. <laughs> at my studio, League of Geeks, our main thing is we want to make a game with the three C's. And it's not the three C's I referred to before. This is sort of our mission. And it's, we want to make games that have equal measures of critical, cultural, and commercial success. And so a game has to have a chance of doing that. So critical, it means it has to be a good game. Like Mm -hmm. people are going to play it and they're going to go, oh yeah, this is a good game. It's going to review well. It's going to metacritic well. Our peers are going to think it's a great game. Culturally, it needs to push the medium, like the bounds of the medium out. It needs to contribute to the art form for us having contributed to it. And then the third one is commercial success. And the way we define that is that it sustains our creative independence by perpetuating that. So for us, they're the big ones. And I mean, at our studio, we have three founders. It's myself, Ty Carey and Blake Mitzi. And really because, you know, we, we just are like, do we want to make this game? We run it through all those filters and we go, okay. And we sort of, we pitch when we went through the process of this current game, we would pitch them to the studio and to the team and go, which one resonates, which one doesn't. We see who rallies behind what. And, but ultimately, yeah, the three founders are going, okay, this is what we think it's worth investing our studio time and money in. Others, but to be clear, they're your ideas. Like they're, they're your ideas. Yeah, they're the so yeah, we yep. develop original IP. And yep. when I was at Taurus, we would have projects come in, like say Paramount might be like, we want to give you the license for this film and they would put out an RFP and then we would pitch on it and then it would go to Mm. some go through some process on their end on the publisher end that we wouldn't see and so if you're pitching on licensed content then usually the publisher is green lighting it or not some projects will have a green light period as well so that pre-production in case within that you might be working towards a green light so you're trying to get that vertical slice and get the game to a point where you have that vertical slice and then you're showing it to them and they approve it or not. I mean, it's kind of hard. It's like, what? how does a film get approved, right? Like, mm. how does a series get approved? And it's sort of a, it's a contributing amalgamation of factors of like, is it going to make money? Is it going to be good? Does it fit well into our catalog? Like, we're assigned to a publisher now. We haven't announced who. It'll be announced early next year. 
but they're a really Podcast. exciting publisher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it is. No, um, they're a really exciting publisher, but they have a green light period. And then also one of the main reasons why they went with us um, speaking to their head of production was because out of the hundred pitches that they got at the game developers conference in San Francisco, we were like one of three or five where we actually spoke about the business case and we, in our slides, we had things to back it up. So a lot of people are just walking into meetings still in 2019 going, we just want to make this game because we think it's cool and mm-hmm. it has ninjas and swords and how great is that? I mean, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we've seen all that before. And so we're at League of Geeks, we're really conscious to speak to the business case and everything. But another reason why our publisher signed it was because it was a great fit within their catalog. Mm. So there's a number of different reasons. Um, if you're a small indie team, it can just be because oh, I had this idea for a while. I've been wanting to tinker away on it. And I know a lot of video games as well. They may not start with a concept that is like, oh, you're a ninja and you're, oh, this, I mean, sorry, this is the most basic examples <laughs> here. I'm just pulling right from the top of my head. You know, you're a ninja and you jump around buildings and blah, blah, blah. They might actually start from a mechanic. So they're like, I've really wanted to have, see what happens when the camera is disconnected from the player in a way where there's latency based on some move that you do with the environment. And then they'll explore that and they'll tinker around with that and they'll mm. put that input in. Build and from that, then they build a story around it. So a lot of where there's a framework called um, MDA by Mark LeBlanc and Robin Haneke to, to talk about, uh, which is like a game design framework. And they talk about mechanics and aesthetics. And then in the middle, you have dynamics. And so that's I where admit, I heard Matt LeBlanc, like uh, Joey from Friends. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I love the idea that he's involved in this yeah, industry Yeah, that's it. Now. He's, um, yeah, it didn't work out in the acting for Joey and he yeah, pivoted video games, into video big. game academia. I'm, I'm curious a bit more about the process. Um, a few episodes ago, we spoke to Virginia Murdoch, who is in kind of more traditional software development and kind of, um, you know, kind of software as a service products. And that's a very kind of iterative process where kind of, you know, they have this one thing and they're consistently kind of adding to it. I'm really curious how you're working to kind of, you know, you're saying three years now as a timeline mm-hmm. on your kind of current game. And obviously there's a huge kind of unknown because you kind of do it, you work all the time, and then you just kind of put it out there. The only game I know that kind of had a big update, there was No Man's Sky, you know, where they put it out after all that work mm. and then realized, oh, this isn't getting the reception we wanted. And then they were able to kind of go back and make some changes. But I would see that to be, I mean, maybe that's kind of becoming a bit more normal now. How do you kind of deal with the fact that this is such a big process and how does that kind of affect your process in terms of like the long timelines? Like how does that affect kind of what you do to make sure that you're, you're kind of on track to meet those goals that you're talking about? Have you ever read a book called Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, who was the president of Pixar? Oh, no. That is it's a full-blown recommendation for me. It's like the Bible on um, creative production. And it's, so it's, it's almost like the biography of Pixar, of the story of Pixar, but within it are all of these production lessons. And the reason why I bring that up is because these large-scale projects, especially for us where we're making original IP, so we're developing the IP as we go, but then we're also trying to create new types of gameplay so that we're going to have that cultural success that we were talking about. You're working with unknowns a lot of the time. And a third of that book, I would say about a third of Creativity Inc., is just Ed Catmull talking about all of their directors' ways of coping with the fact that you have no fucking idea (laughs) what is coming around the corner or where this project's going. You're sort of like you're a shepherd leading sheep through the dark. And we have people in the studio who can cope with that to differing degrees. And I don't know what it is, but I, I love that part of video games. I love walking out into the unknown. And I, I'm a very, I'm like, if, you know, you think about modes of thinking, I'm a big chunk person who can then swoop down into the little chunks when I need to. And that's generally how it works for us at at League of Geeks in regards to production is we chunk out the game. And so the very near term stuff, we want to know everything. Like, for example, this week, I'm going to go in and for our vertical slice, I'm going to find an asset list or I'm going to create an asset list with our executive producer, Lisey Kane, who spoke at Creative Mornings. And that asset list is going to say things as detailed as we need this type of sound in the game. We need these 3D models. This is how many levels are in it. This is the degree of quality. Like, And it's going to list out everything that we need to make. And that's because that's what we're working on in the next six to 14 weeks. But then the midterm, you can get a little bit looser, a little bit loosey-goosey on that. And you just want to zoom out a little bit more, but you might say like, okay, we need this many animations. But you don't need to say what they are, but you budget it out loosely so that people know the general scope that you're working with. But then further down the track, like what we're doing in two years' time or other elements of the game that we haven't figured out, it can be as high level as you know, just one line or you know, like a one-pager of like this is what we're going for, a bit of a mind map a high level game design document. And so, but then as you move, you fill in the gaps as you move forward. Mm. 
And we actually work with a production methodology where, and it was pioneered by a studio called Criterion, which made the Burnout games, a series of a very popular series of racing games. But essentially, they were for Electronic Arts, EA, huge publisher. They owned Criterion Studios, and they worked for EA and became their sort of like just through making all of those terrible decisions that you do, you know, when you've got all the pressure of money and deadlines and everything, they became this weird death march studio where they had this, um, I'm not sure if you heard of the culture of crunch, we call in video games, where no. people work incredibly long periods of time over, you know, we're talking like 50 to 100 hour weeks over sustained periods of time, like four to eight weeks, sometimes longer. Anyway, it became a really horrid studio to work at and EA ended up shutting them down and they scaled back down to five people and they said, what have we done? How have we lost our way? Let's rebuild the studio. And so there's a fantastic talk on YouTube called Autonomy Mastery Purpose by Alex Moll, who's a technical director at Criterion. And they talk about how they rebuilt the studio and they were like, no more dogma, nothing like that. We're going to actually find out what motivates people and how to build a healthy production pipeline. And they came up with this idea that what people need the most is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. That's what makes people happy. And so they sort of flipped it and they were like, okay, well, what does production look like if it's led from the bottom up? And how do we give our team as much autonomy as possible? And we've taken that model and we're in constant contact with good friends of ours at Criterion and we're working with them on sort of building that and refining that. And so how we work is we have milestones. So they come around every 14 weeks and we deliver a bunch of materials and sort of a snapshot of where we're at, including a build of the game to our publisher. And that will continue all the way through launch and post-launch because we'll be updating our game like you were talking about No Man's Sky does. And those three months, they work out to exactly 14 weeks. It's not really three months, but 14 weeks. And we split them into two episodes of seven weeks. At the start of that seven weeks, we have an alignment week. And that alignment week, we get everyone in room offsite and we basically align on the game and where we're going for the next seven weeks. So it's the first part of the week is what we did before. So people get up, they demo their work. We run a retro, what worked, what didn't. In the middle of the week, I'll present the themes and goals to the team for our next six weeks. And sometimes they'll heckle and boo because I've got it wrong and we'll change it. Or sometimes I get it right and everything in between. And they are built with the leadership team as well, those themes. And then... Towards the end of the week, everyone in that room, they create their own little teams or an agile teams of like, say, three to seven people, multidisciplinary teams, and they'll create their epics for the next six weeks, which are like their big buckets for all of their tasks. So you might have something that's like enemy type one AI. And so there's a whole bunch of tasks you can imagine that would fall out of that, but they write some acceptance criteria on the back and that's something that they want to commit to. And so we come out of those alignment weeks and everyone knows the game that we're making, we talk about it, you know, a long form sense of where we're going, what the targets are, what it should look like. And something I say is you should be able to run the simulation. So you should be able to close your eyes and see the game playing out in your head. We all want to achieve that in those alignment weeks. And, you know, there's no voice too small or anything. We're all on a level playing field. So if something doesn't make sense to you, if someone's saying something that you don't understand, or if you feel like you, someone says something that you're like, oh, hold on, I didn't think the game or that part of the game was like that. You just put your hand up, you ask, and we all have the time there to make sure that we're all on the same page. And then we move forward and people work as autonomously as possible. Now I'm the game runner which slash game director on this new project, but that's not me doing point and command style management. That's me just helping, you know, shepherds lead from the back, right? They don't lead from the front. Um, you know, they try and find alphas or the leaders within the, and they just, with their sticks, you know, if we're talking like Israel type, you know, shepherding, because I, I was out there <laughs> shepherding like a few years ago for a leadership course. Um, but they just like, yeah, that's a different story. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they just course correct along the way. And so that's really my job is to provide the high level context, lay down the goals and then empower the team, the talented people in the trenches to then deliver on those. But we're only really looking in a micro sense, six weeks ahead, max at any point in time. And then the leadership team and my Myself, I'm looking three years ahead, along with Lisi, my executive producer. We're really making sure that we're on course to bring this, to bring this home. And so, in regards to breaking up production, we have pre-production, which is what I spoke about before, and then we'll have production, and they're broken up into these 14-week milestones, and we break them up further into episodes. But say, for example, as soon as we get into production, the next major milestone we have, which is actually the fourth milestone, I believe, so about a year into production, we have what's called alpha. And so these are the ones that you'll hear a lot about in video games. These are the most famous, um, most publicly known milestones within video game development, and it comes from software development as well. You will have alpha, which is essentially all critical systems, core systems, and gameplay systems online. So there shouldn't be anything that's not functioning properly in the game. Mm. And you can also, let's say if it's a game that has levels and it's a linear game from start to finish, you should be able to play the game from start to end without it crashing, no major progression blocker bugs. 
that's alpha. Then beta, and there's different people will probably write in and be like, no, that's not alpha, that's like different. Um, because, you know, it can change from studio to studio. And why is that, what's missing from alpha? Why is alpha not the finished product? Because art is all placeholder a lot of the gotcha. time. There's cool. not polish, there's not finesse, like, um, and also yep. content. So you can it's imagine. the framework. Exactly. And you can build the framework for a system, but not all of the permutations that there is. Like you might not be plugging in all of the content. And then beta is your content complete, essentially. So no placeholder art, all of the content is there. And then past beta, studios typically the next one is gold master and that comes from the old days of burning to cd-rom because you would burn the gold master cd that you would put in an envelope and you would mail to the states and give to the publisher and they would then press all of the discs based off that gold master how times have changed yeah but we still use the word right and so you have pre-production which leads to a vertical slice some people call them experience goals then you have alpha which is feature complete then you have beta which is content complete and then you have gold master which is the final version of the game Hmm. crazy there is a lot of terminology all rolled up in here but i can see so much crossover into how everyone produces kind of kind of everything else. It's just what we're gaining from a lot of these episodes. I want to know though, you talk about how, you know, a lot of your role is kind of keeping people aligned, Mm -hmm. making sure people have what they do to do their best work. And of course, you've got these kind of face-to-face meetings and you've got, of course, the tools that you use to actually build games. But what about other tools that you use to communicate, to keep people on track? Do you use any sort of project management tools or any other tools in that kind of space? Yeah, certainly. Um, We're big Atlassian fans. Mm. So we use Jira for our task management. So everyone puts their tasks into Jira. Even if you're just like changing the color on something, you're like, okay, write that up and put in a task and put it through the pipeline. We have a full approval process and stuff. So it goes through the right people. And there's there's a balance there between removing as much friction as possible for the person doing the task so that, you know, you don't need five different stages of approval to just change the color of something. But then also making sure that we in production and on the leadership team can ensure, because we're the gatekeepers of the quality of the game and all the work that everyone does, that we're entrusting people to do their best work, but there are also other checks and balances to make sure that we're all on the same page about what that level of quality is. So we have Jira, which manages our task pipeline, and then we use Confluence for all of our documentation. So that's like, a, I guess you would call it like a product, like a wiki. Mm. And it's really, really powerful. Obviously, every program has its own quirks. <laughs> You're like battling with it all the time. To but say the least, yeah. Yeah, they're not cheap, but they're fantastic programs, especially if you've got large-scale projects, Confluence and Jira, great. And you can have all these dashboards and everything that show you where you're at. We use Slack for communication. We have a bunch of processes and rules around Slack. I mean, we have a hundred channels or something like that. So when people first start, they're like, oh, well, you have a lot of channels, but it's so conversations are directed and mm. they're happening in the right place. We say that Slack is for communication and Confluence is for documentation. So we never want to see something on Slack that someone will need to reference later or that we need to point to. Decisions shouldn't be made on Slack as well. And if they are, they should be communicated to folks too. Um, so that's like, they're the main points of our communication, obviously in video games are being very interdisciplinary. You're having, and very iterative, you're having a lot of meetings, you're having a lot of chats at people's desks. We have these week long alignment weeks every seven weeks. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's the main bulk of it. Oh, but we also have this thing that we, so we run a agile production methodology. Have you heard mm. of agile? Yeah. So we run agile. We started with, we've been doing it now for four years, I would say. Um, for three years, maybe we started with scrum and we had someone come in and actually coach us. So a, a scrum coach come in and teach the whole team how to do it. And then we moved to Kanban when Kanban is slightly different in the sense it's more flexible. It was actually Kanban and it was developed by someone at Toyota. And so it's what they would use for their production line. And it just has more flow to it. So instead of being chunked into like two-week sprints, you can sort of just bring tasks in and out as you see For anyone who's got no clue what we're talking about here, these Mm. are basically systems of production that you can follow. And people have come up with different methodologies for how you can go from start to finish on a project. Yeah, so Scrum and Kanban are two sort of children of the agile methodology and it can it's a software development production methodology but a a lot of production even manufacturing uses and stuff like i said toyota essentially what we took was kanban and now we've bastardized it as everyone does with agile and we've got this thing called log kanban that we use in the studio so we actually have physical boards in the studio pin boards that are like Mm. seven feet long and you know two meters high or whatever and we actually have those epics that i was talking about we move those across the board so we used to have all of our tasks and everything up there bugs for the game too and it's all color coded and we have you know face people's faces that we put on there and stuff and there's little hashtags that link to task ids 
But now the tasks are all digital. The team were like, we just want to go digital on the tasks. And that's production. Lisi was super happy about that because then we hmm. get all the data and we can see the graphs and everything. But the epics, the larger tasks, we keep them physical. So we double up because we have stand-ups every morning as well. So this is a really important point of our communication at Log. Every morning we have stand-ups. We call it production hour from 10 to 11. So at League of Geeks, you can get in anytime before 10. But from 10 to 11, you need to be dedicated to communicating and collaborating with the rest of the team and ensuring that everyone has what they need to be able to work for the rest of the day. Now, that's a dream scenario that doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but that should be your objective. And from 10 a.m., we run stand-ups between all the team. And stand-ups are short informal meetings where you actually get up and you'll have an interdisciplinary team that's working. They're usually centered around a feature. Ours are centered around themes that we, and these are the teams that I was talking about, we, we spin up in our alignment weeks. And so you can imagine a scenario where we have this pin board and there's five people standing around and you'll have a programmer, a producer, an artist, a designer, and they will start by saying what they did. We go around the circle and you say what you did yesterday, what you're going to do today. And we go around the circle. And then at the end, the scrum master or the person who's sort of like keeping the meeting running will say, okay, any blockers, concerns or comms. And then you might say, oh yeah, I have a blocker. This person broke the build. And so I can't actually check my stuff in. Or yeah, I have a concern. This task doesn't seem like it's going to come in on time because of X, Y, Z. Or I have something to communicate. Hey, that thing, I checked it in last night. So you should be able to continue doing your work. These meetings take about five minutes, well, for each team. So it's a way Mm. for us to quickly whip through each team. And then on Mondays, we have what we call SOS, which is Scrum of Scrums. So then we get all the leads, the leadership team at the company to come and we just run through the project. So we'll go, okay, Armello, what's happening in the EP for Armello, our executive producer, Woody, will run through everything that's going on with Armello across all of our platforms. And then Lisi, the EP on our new project, will run through that and everything that's happening that week. And then Megan, our wonderful studio manager, will run through what's going on with recruiting or anything happening in the studio, we have people visiting or something like that. And then, you know, other folks will, our finance manager is usually there too. She'll say if there's anything we need to know. Wow. Yeah. That is just, I'm, I, the, we could probably talk for days on this. I'm just fascinating, learning so many new things and finding already just kind of so many different overlaps with our industry. But we do need to kind of wrap up soon. And I thought I'd, I'm really kind of, you obviously have a lot of kind of knowledge. You're putting a lot of kind of work into um, your own development personally and kind of in the studio. And I, I'd love to hear kind of some kind of takeaway and specifically if you can maybe put it into, I guess, more of a real world scenario, especially we love talking about disaster stories here. I don't know if anything kind of comes to mind, but I assume working over kind of three years like you have technology changing or you have your idea maybe being explored by a different studio or kind of something else is is there a particular kind of challenge that you face kind of regularly or something kind of concrete that you have faced that had a really concrete takeaway that you'd like to kind of pass on to other people in the industry yeah i think no matter how large you get agility especially if you're interfacing with your customer directly uh, with your product so say for example if you make a book and it goes into stores as like a you know a physical book a picture book for kids or whatever you're not really interfacing with your audience but us we work as what's called a games as a service studio so our production methodology is exactly what you're talking about with no man's sky where when we release a game it's not just fire and forget we actually support the game with free content and paid dlc for years post-launch downloadable content so expansions to the game and stuff like that fantastic question you got a non-gamer here <laughs> yeah that's it. i'm hitting you with all my nerd jargon uh so yeah we'll just continue expanding the game post-launch so even after we've finished even after we hit gold master and that's a way for us to keep our community engaged because our games are multiplayer as well keep make sure there's enough people playing it and also to just frankly derive more money from the game exploit the ip as much as we can without you know driving it into the ground but one of the things that's super important is maintaining that agility. And we've seen that time and time again. So no matter how large we scale and all the production processes that we put in place, processes are there to service. They're not meant to be our prison. And a great example was we released, <laughs> it was our first major update for the year. It was last year, start of the year. And we released it on a Friday and we came back on the Monday and we looked at our, we have these TVs in the studio that have all of our analytics on there. So all of the telemetry about the health of the game, how many people are playing these dashboards, right? And we walk in and I can't remember who spotted it, but Lisa and I are like, what is going on there? We just saw this huge spike on our like crash analytics. And Lisa's like, oh, that's not good. And we check it. And it turns out that the game, the build of the game that we've put live, so there's thousands of people playing it is just crashing, I think, 17% of the time. So we have a quick little powwow. And the fact that we built up all of these analytics, and I mean, we had a bunch of work to do that week. We were going to move on to doing, you know, the new update and everything. 
but we just spun around on our chairs and we had the stakeholders just dive in and Lisi was like, okay, what are we going to do? What's happening? Because we had the right amount of data. So we built up the analytics and we had the right data, the right information to be able to make a call. And then we were able to, we built the tools as well to be able to roll back to a previous update. And we have our community managers there who are able to advocate for the community and, you know, PR and messaging for the company. And so within five minutes, we'd had a quick conversation, assessed how bad the situation was, assessed our options, and we decided to actually roll back the game. So that means removing that brand new update from all of the players who are currently playing it. And we messaged the community. And so Lisi wrote this fantastic post that was like, hey, and here's the key is that we were absolutely honest. It's like, hey that build that we put out is absolutely terrible. And we have no idea why, but look, here's a photo of our dashboards. We just came in over the weekend. This is what we're looking at. And for us, this is unacceptable. One of our pillars at League of Geeks is stability. And so we're going to roll back the build and we're going to work on it and we're going to only put it back out when it's safe to do so. And that post, ironically, was the most liked post we've ever had as a studio when announcing anything. Like, I mean, probably more liked than when we announced the actual game. And there is a thing called Boyd Cycles. I don't know if you've heard of them. It's named after an Air Force pilot where in the 1950s in the Korean War, the American fighter pilots were far more successful than the Koreans, and they were trying to figure out why. And the Koreans had far better planes than the Americans. And the Americans just put it down to, oh, our training, blah, 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 blah. But this pilot, Boyd, I forget his last first name, was essentially after the Korean War was like, it's got to be something else. And so when they looked into it, they found out that the American pilots could perform these things called OODA loops faster. So observe, orient, decide, act. And it had to do with a number of factors. So like, for example, the American pilots, their planes were not in like they could see around them 360 degrees mm. and the Korean planes couldn't. Also, they had, I think they had like power steering or something, so they could maneuver faster or something like that. Anyway, there are a number of factors that came in that enabled them to move through these cycles of these loops, these Boyd cycles, as they're now called, these OODA loops, faster so that they could observe what's going on, they could orient themselves on where they are, and then they could decide and they could act. And essentially, as a studio, iteration with software development is the most important thing. And so we're trying, even as we scale, even as we get bigger, we're trying to make sure that we can observe, orient, decide, and act as fast as possible. And that scenario where we come in on a Monday and the build that's live for thousands of players is absolutely fucked. Within five minutes, we were able to perform one of those OODA loops, and it was the most successful announce that we'd ever done to our audience by our studio. And it was bad news. You know, it's like, Uh we're bringing this new update. We're taking it away from you. And sure, it took us a, a day or two to fix the crashes, and then we put it back out. But yeah, scaling whilst remaining agile, ensuring that you can iterate, observe, orient, decide, act as fast as possible has been something that's key to our production. I think that's a fascinating concept of having systems in place that ensure you're able to be agile because it's not just about being agile when you need to be, but it's about laying the groundwork that allows you to be agile when you when you want to be, when you need to be, when it's crucial. Trent, thank you so much for unloading your brain on us because that was wonderful. <laughs> if people want to learn more about you and what you guys do, where can they go? Sure. Um, you can go to leagueofgeeks.com. I mean, that's our website there. There's a bunch of stuff there. Also, if you want to work with us, it's careers.leagueofgeeks.com. We're really, um, we're scaling up at the moment. We've got some exciting stuff on but apart from that, I think that's probably the best place to go. You can follow us on Twitter at League of Geeks. You can we're on Facebook too. Yeah, that's that's the best place to go. And quick question: What's the favorite game you're playing right now that you guys didn't produce? Well, Goose Game, to be honest. I mean, like that's a so if you haven't played it, Untitled Goose Game. It's by some developers here in Melbourne. They're called House House. Fantastic bunch. Uh, we worked with them on their first game, Push Me, Pull You, and they've just, I mean, when I met them, they were just some kids who'd come out of art school and made a you know, a video game project in their summer holidays for fun. And now they've made one of the most successful, most fantastic video games like ever made. It's it's really, really impressive. And it's great for anyone, young or old, in, if you're not into video games. I mean, the amount of stories I've heard of people who aren't in video games that want to play Untitled Goose Game is amazing. So yeah, that's why. Oh, I mean, it's so fascinating. The amount of crossover that we're finding in the industry as well is amazing. Like, you know, we're getting our artists to kind of work in VR at the moment. And we kind of built this very small kind of unity experience for ourselves. Like, you know, putting these tilt brush and blocks pieces kind of in there yeah. because the, you know, the potential for these virtual spaces is unlimited. And so we're so interesting to just kind of see these kind of crossovers of kind of gaming, advertising, commerce, illustration, animation, kind of all of our, I mean, I always found that the, the gaming and the, 
the kind of advertising industry to be really kind of far apart. But we're seeing this kind of convergence now that's really interesting. And so I'm a bit bummed we didn't have enough time to talk about all the different kind of, I guess, pies you have your fingers in because, you know, there's so many kind of different um, yeah. things that you're doing and so many different things to look forward to. We'll but, have to do a part two. Yeah, yeah we'll hopefully have to do a part two. Yeah. Yeah. Back. Indeed, I'd love to. Do you, do you guys do your own podcast? Are there, are there kind of gaming podcasts that people want to learn more that you'd recommend? Oh, yeah. Actually, I will recommend a few. So if you're into production, if you're into high-level creative slash game direction, there's a fantastic podcast called the AIAS Game Makers Notebook. So that stands for the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, which is like, you know, the film academy, but for video games. And there's another one actually that's fantastic called Tone Control, which is hosted by Steve Gaynor, who made a wonderful game called Gone Home, worked on Bioshock before that. So that's fantastic. Tone Control talks to game developers and speaks about how they got into the industry and why they made particular decisions, creative decisions or production decisions on particular video games. And there, there's a bunch out there. Awesome. Trent, thank you so much. We are going to include all the links to those podcasts right. as well as to the talks and stuff that you mentioned before in our show notes so everyone can go there to soak that all up. Thanks again, Trent. It's been wonderful. You're welcome. Okay, before we go, here's what's been open in our open tabs this week. Now, just a reminder to get these links sent directly to your inbox, you can sign up to our newsletter by going to jwg.is slash newslettering, or you can head to our website, which is jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz. All right, Jeremy, I'm hitting you first. What have you got? Okay, well, so this is a, a bit of a kind of two-part of a kind of semi-related. So I have been wanting to buy the book designed by Apple in California for such a long time. Mm. And so I don't know why, but it's been sold out for like kind of like a year. And so like in my open tabs, I've had the kind of page up. I refresh it kind of maybe once a week after I do a kind of a bit of a sweep. And I was like, why is this book sold out? I have no idea. But anyway, it did bring me on to kind of a second thing because like I really want to see it. So I was like, are there libraries that have it? Like are there PDFs I could download? And then it kind of opened me up to this new thing of basically YouTube book no. reveals. And so basically people <laughs> will film like, you know, these like art books on YouTube. I don't know if it's just an Apple thing or if there's more, but basically because I just wanted to see what the pages looked like. I wanted to see what was going on. So I, I had this YouTube video open in my open tabs of someone literally just kind of filming themselves kind of going page by through page. the book. Yes. I mean, and raises some very interesting kind of licensing and copyright questions yeah. there. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's what's in my open tabs. Um, Laura, what do you got? Mine is so lame. But as everyone who listens to this knows that I've been working from home at the moment, freelancing, which means that I'm sort of getting distracted a lot more than I would like. And that means I've been buying a lot of things on the internet that I probably don't need to buy. I bought a whole lot of like mason, like pickling jars recently because I decided I want to make mustard and sauerkraut. That's another <laughs> thing. But I also bought the other day, and you know what? I don't regret this. Jeremy, do you know what a pop socket is? Pop socket? This is a pop oh, socket. Yes. Uh, so for a uh, very funny story about for the that. audio medium, the pop socket is those those things that you see stuck on the back of everyone's phones that kind of pop out. It's like a circle and it kind of helps you hold the phone better. And I don't know, they had a sale somehow. I was worded up on it and I bought one and it was like $8 with free shipping. So, you know, I haven't like broken the bank and you know what? Fucking love it. I have tiny little hands and also now I can take great selfies, which as we all know is um, the meaning of life. So <laughs> pop sockets. I into love it. that phones have gotten so big that now there's yeah. another item that's popped up <laughs> to compensate for the fact that people can't hold their You know their what phones? is good though about oh, it? Oh and God. it sounds like I work for them and if they want to sponsor the show, that's A-OK. <laughs> you can use it as a stand, which I like when I'm cooking yeah. and I have a, my recipe open on my phone and then I have it as a little stand. I've always here. wondered, is does it have a magnet on the back and you like put it? They on? have ones that have yeah, magnets. Okay, they right. do. So you can use it in, uh, in your, your car, car things. Yeah. And Yeah, it's all very exciting. And I swear this was not paid promotion. No, I've been on the What's it called? The pop, pop socket. socket cusp for a while now. Lisi, who I've mentioned a few times on this podcast, our executive producer is always going on about a pop socket. There's actually, that led me to this. I was trying to figure out like how to, because um, apparently you can like move places. Like it doesn't lose the sticky. You can move it. Right, okay. And I was like on YouTube looking at how I could do it. And there's all these people who have like thousands of videos about pop sockets, but they're not like, they don't work for pop sockets. I mean, they probably get <laughs> sponsored, but like, and it's crazy. And then each of them will have like hundreds. Of, it's like a whole fucking People thing. It's like Beanie out. Babies all over again. But maybe maybe this is going to be my new thing. Trent, what have you got this week? It, Tell me it's better than Pop Sockets. Yeah, well, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can top that. It's actually quite relevant to what we're talking about. So I'm one of those have 90 tabs open at one time type person. That gives so it. Yeah. But I was looking through them and one that's been up for a while, probably since March or April this year, is a talk that 
a good friend of mine, Richard Lemachon, who's a professor over in the States in California and former lead game designer at Naughty Dog that make the Uncharted series and The Last of Us, huge blockbuster video games, some of the best video games made in the world. It's a YouTube video of his talk that he gave at Freeplay. So he came mm. out, we brought him out and he gave a talk at Freeplay called How to Build a Healthy, Happy Video Game. Mm. And so you can just... Google, I'm sure you'll get the link from Lara. I can see her typing away now. You absolutely will. <laughs> but you can also just Google Richard Lemachon free play and it will come up. But it actually goes in depth into all the stuff I've been talking about today. So it talks about milestones and he's been working doing research at the university that he's at. Forgive me, I forget which one because there's UC and there's USC and I can never mm. remember. I think it's USC. And along with uh, working with Tracy Fullerton, I believe, looking at how they what is the best most optimal way to make video games so you know this notion of like what percentage of your production should be pre-production what percentage should be post-production what are good milestones to have and what do those things mean as well and he actually has a slide that he brings up that's like this is what you should have 40 percent of pre-production and then 40 percent of you know and all that sort of stuff it's really really great he is a wonderful wonderful incredibly arresting speaker, um, incredibly eloquent. He has a fantastic English accent to boot as well. <laughs> oh, deeply, deeply compassionate, loving, intelligent person who's a very dear friend of mine. And I, and one of those people that, you know, you can talk to for hours about anything and everything and always has time for everyone. And if you're interested in anything at all that I've said today about video game production or want to continue your learnings from this wonderful episode of the podcast, I'm deciding that we had a wonderful episode, <laughs> um, then I would very much recommend that you go and watch his talk. It goes for about 50 minutes or so. Uh, it's fantastic. It gives you a very high look into- I've already found the link. It's yeah, going to be in our notes. Video game production and the sort of the history of how these methodologies were developed. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much, everyone. That will do us for now. I'm Lara Chan-Baker, he's Jeremy Wartsman, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more episodes, archives of all of our shows can be found at jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz. To receive beautiful artwork, the links to our open tabs and updates on all things Jackie Winter in one neat little weekly email package, you can sign up to our newsletter at jwg.is newslettering. You can also find us on Instagram via at Jackie Winter, and you can email us any love letters, hate mail, or general feedback at podcast at JackieWinter.com. I'll say it again. We really, really love to hear from you. Remember, this is also an enhanced podcast. So if you listen to this using Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or Castro, you'll be able to see any relevant visual content as we rabbit on. It's like we're just there in the room with you. And if you work for an advertising agency or design studio and are interested in our live extended version of the show called Open Tabs, be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. That's a really great question. It's funny because, again, I don't really identify as a producer, but I mm. had one of those moments where I woke up and I'm like, I really care about... Oh, my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes, my ringtone is the succession. <laughs> That's awesome. God. Sorry, y'all.